Welcome to the podcast of Greenlight Bookstore. This is the quarantine season. While Greenlight's two bookstore locations in Brooklyn are closed to the public as we do our part to stop the spread of coronavirus, Greenlight still strives for ways to create connection around books. Thanks to the gracious efforts of authors and interviewers scattered across the country, we've taken our events programming online hosting live readings, conversations, and audience questions via Zoom. Our podcasts this season are a record of those intimate conversations between thinkers and creators speaking from separate rooms and a window into the ways that ideas and stories connect us all. Enjoy the conversation and visit greenlightbookstore.com for more. Hi, folks. I'm Chelsea with Greenlight Bookstore. Good evening and welcome to tonight's live online author event with Greenlight Bookstore. We're excited to host tonight's Authors in Conversation event, featuring Jessica Anthony and Deb Olin Unferth. They'll be presenting their new books, Enter the Aardvark and Barn 8, so you're in for an excellent time. Before we start, I just want to say a huge thanks to everyone for making this happen and to all of you for showing up. Greenlight storefronts are currently closed and locked, but our community is still here. Tonight's featured books, Enter the Aardvark and Barnate, are available for sale from greenlightbookstore.com. Though our stores are closed, we're working with our supplier warehouse for fast direct-to-home shipping. If you care about supporting the careers of authors and the ongoing existence of independent bookstores, buying tonight's featured books is a great way to show your support. Jessica Anthony is the author of The Convalescent and Chopsticks, a multimedia novel created in collaboration with designer Rodrigo Corral. Her short stories can be found in Best New American Voices, Best American Non-Required Reading, McSweeney's, The Idaho Review, and elsewhere. She has recently received fellowships from the Creative Capital Foundation, the BridgeGuard Foundation, the Bagliasco Foundation, and the Maine Arts Commission. Anthony has been a butcher in Alaska, an unlicensed masseuse in Poland, a secretary in San Francisco. Her new book, Enter the Aardvark, is an outrageous edge-of-your-seat novel that hurdles between a closeted congressman in contemporary Washington, D.C. and a taxidermist in Victorian England. Deb Olin Unferth is the author of six books. She has received a Guggenheim Fellowship and three Pushcart Prizes and was a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist. Her work has appeared in Granta, Harper's, McSweeney's, and the Paris Review. Her new book, Barn 8, is a high story of a very unusual sort, taking readers into the minds of these renegades. Animal activists, a farmer's daughter, a former director of undercover investigations, a forest ranger, and a security guard. Jessica and Deb will each start us off with a reading from their books, and they'll be talking with each other and with all of you. Jessica and Deb, please take it away. Thank you. Deb and I are so happy to be here tonight in conversation with one another. And we are going to start off just with a short reading from uh, each of our new novels. And then we're going to turn the conversation over to just some questions that we have for each other about the process of writing these books and just some questions that we both have as readers of these books. And I also really wanna thank Chelsea and the Greenlight Bookstore, which is really a tremendous force for peace and goodness in New York. Uh, Thank you so much, Greenlight, for having us. My novel, Enter the Aardvark, is, uh, 
as Chelsea said, the story of a GOP millennial congressman who receives on his front doorstep one day a gigantic taxidermic aardvark that ends up bringing down, in the space of about 24 hours, bringing down his entire re-election campaign. The novel hurdles between two time periods. We are in present-day Washington, D.C., following Alexander Wilson, the congressman. He's trying to sort of cope with and get rid of this giant aardvark that's arrived on his doorstep. And the novel also goes back to 1875 Victorian England, where we follow Titus Downing, the taxidermist who stuffed the aardvark. So in the section that I'm going to read from just this evening, uh, just a few pages for you, Alexander Wilson has received the aardvark. He has put this gigantic taxidermied creature into the back of his Chevy Tahoe. He knows who delivered it to him. It's Greg Tampico, and Greg is his secret lover. And he's decided because the internet is down and nothing is working, he's just going to drive the aardvark and return it to Greg Tampico. But while he's on the road with the aardvark in the back of his Tahoe, he gets a text message uh, and it, the, the internet starts working and he learns that Greg Tampico has actually died. And so he's turned the car around and he's returning back to his townhouse in Foggy Bottom when a cop pulls him over. And that's where I'm going to read from tonight. Cops are easy. All you have to do is show him your ID, explain you're a congressman. There will be some perfunctory chit-chat, and you will make the officer feel important for, you know, like providing the civil service that he provides. And he may or may not write you a light traffic ticket or something, which is no problem. There's no problem that your staffers can't handle. And sure enough, when the officer approaches your Tahoe, asks for your license, registration, insurance, and you hand it all over, all is going as it should go, and the officer is like you, a young, handsome white guy, and he even actually like looks a little bit like you, and you have no reason to imagine that anything will go wrong in the way that it's about to go wrong until he puts both hands over the side of your door and asks you what the hell you were doing all this time on your phone. You grin. You apologize. Oh, you definitely know better, you sing, but you are, after all, in the middle of a re-election campaign. The officer must understand, and you are heading back home right now to tend to the numerous things that need tending and show him your ID again. This, for some reason, makes him angry. I need to see your phone, Congressman, he says, and sticks out his hand. You give it to him and become slightly nervous watching the officer scroll through your phone like that, especially when he begins telling you that there are new laws in place for distracted driving, and he's been observing you ever since you made that illegal Yui, and he saw how you did not put down your phone once in 10 whole minutes, and he even says it like that, like he's a toddler exaggerating some tiny injustice 10 whole minutes. Frankly, Congressman, he says, I don't care who you are. If you're out here driving so recklessly, you're putting the public in danger. You affirm his position. Gosh, you tell him, he is 100% right. You should absolutely not be on your phone while driving, and you are grateful to him for helping you understand the new laws, even if you do feel they are stupid laws, and if he needs to write you a ticket, you will understand. From him, there is silence. You ask him how the boys on the force are doing, if there's anything the boys on the force need that they're not getting from Congress, and you again gently remind him that you are a congressman and show him your ID, at which point he glances at you incredulous. He laughs out loud, and this laughing, 
It's now telling you that this officer is not on your side. He's not one of you. He's probably a fucking Democrat and there is no talking to Democrats. And so from that point on, you shut your mouth and let the officer do the talking, which as it turns out is a good idea because you are about to feel more than mildly impugned when the officer starts to unload on you about his wife, about how she needed an emergency abortion to save her life and how you representative Alexander Payne Wilson were one of the congressmen who voted in favor of Virginia's recently failed bill to ban all abortions after six weeks, who would have just let his wife die under the pretense of protecting life. And that is why this officer, the name on his badge says Anderson, who lives in a shitty condo in Falls Church or someplace, is not only about to vote for Nancy fucking Beavers, he's about to make the life of her opponent all kinds of gigantic living hell. Sir, step out of the vehicle, Officer Anderson says. You step out. The cop actually asks you to turn around and he's going to give you a pat down, okay, he says. And so you find yourself red faced and furious as you turn around on this brutally hot morning and place your hands on the brutally hot hood of the Tahoe as cars and trucks hurtle past, headed onto the bridge and right toward the Jefferson Memorial. The officer's lights are circling. Everything smells like burnt rubber and oil, and you pray no one recognizes you as Officer Anderson slaps his hands up your legs into your groin, and you are in the midst of deciding that you are going to report him to your staffers. They will take care of this, you know, no sweat, when he tells you to go to the back of the Tahoe and open it. You walk to the back as a long row of freighter trucks screams past. The heat of the pavement hits you, the oil, the gas, it makes you lightheaded, and you are thinking only about what world of shit this dickbag Officer Anderson is going to find himself in when he's done with you, which means you are not thinking at all about the cargo which you are carrying in the back of the Tahoe when you open the doors. The police officer jumps back. What in the hell is that? He shouts. Enter the aardvark a light on its mount. Enter the aardvark, claw raised, head covered with a goddamn gourmet $22 dish towel that suddenly looks incredibly suspicious hanging over the head of an aardvark like it's an infidel. It's an aardvark, you say. And the officer yanks the flour sack off the aardvark's head like it will bite him. And yes, a gigantic taxidermied aardvark is taking up the trunk of your Tahoe. Officer Anderson looks at you. What are you doing with a stuffed aardvark, Congressman? I'm not doing anything with it, you say. What's it for? You look like you don't understand what he's asking because you honestly don't understand what he's asking. Where's the permit, he says. The what? The permit. You need a federal permit to possess this wildlife, he says. You calmly explain that this wildlife was delivered to your house just this morning. And if Officer Anderson wants, he can follow you back to Asher Place and you can show him the box, the big ass cardboard box it was delivered in. But Anderson shakes his head. A federal taxidermy permit allows you to temporarily possess another's legally acquired wildlife, he says, Avi wrote from some book. It is unlawful for any person to import, export, transport, sell, receive, acquire, or purchase in interstate or foreign commerce any wildlife taken, possessed, transported, or sold in violation of any state or foreign law. It's called the Lacey Act. Now you're mad. You know the goddamn Lacey Act, you said, but you didn't steal it, and you certainly didn't stuff it. It was, like, given to you, for Christ's sakes. It's a goddamn gift, you insist, and you don't even realize the trap you've laid for yourself until it's too late. Anderson looks at you sideways. All right, Congressman, he says, who gave you this aardvark? Whoever gave it to you should have given you the permit, he says, and that's when you start imagining scenarios. 
like pushing Officer Anderson to the ground and jumping back into the Tahoe and speeding off, or like telling Officer Anderson to, hey, wow, look at that weird bird in the sky, and then punching Officer Anderson in his jaw and his gut and then jumping back in the Tahoe, or like maybe out sprinting Anderson on foot down the 14th Street Bridge, jumping over one side into the Potomac, swimming to shore, abandoning the Tahoe and the aardvark, and then somehow hailing an Uber, or just like going for it and grabbing Anderson's gun from his holster and turning yourself over over to fate, but none of these are viable options in the 21st century. In the 21st century, cameras are everywhere. They are in Officer Anderson's cop car. They are on his body. They are recording you right now as you are hesitating to answer his question, and you can feel things getting bad. Anderson is getting suspicious, so you resign yourself to the fourth option, the glorious refuge of rich, young, white men everywhere pleading dumb. And I'll stop there. Thanks. So I thought that was amazing. I love that part of the book. I love that book, but we'll talk about that afterwards. Now I will talk for a moment. So, all right, so my book is uh, Barnate and it is an eco heist novel. It's about uh, two auditors for the US egg industry, Janie and Cleveland. And they go rogue and they decide that they are going to steal a million chickens of a an industry farm and so it, i'm just going to read it's really just about a page that i'm going to read and at this point these two Janie and cleveland they've at this point only taken a couple of chickens they're just they're just revving up like they've taken one here one there they took a few from this farm and they haven't quite formulated this plan that they're going to have yet and so Cleveland, who's kind of directing this whole thing, is arguing with Janie about how to talk about it. So I'm just going to read about a page or so. Read more, more than a page. It's... <laughs> <laughs> you do whatever you want. All right. They didn't call it stealing since that made it sound like notepads from the supply room, and Cleveland kept insisting this was part of their job. She forbade them to call it freeing, or worse, liberating. Where could they take these birds where they'd be free? The chickens were so overbred, they no longer had a natural habitat. You have to have a place to go where you can be free in order to be freed, Cleveland said. But Janie wasn't so sure. These chickens, these animals with wings who could fly short distances, these birds, as in the phrase, free as a bird, eligible for freedom? Cleveland was unmoved. Likewise, the hyperbolic rescue was out. So what to call it? Releasing sounded like a dirty massage. Delivering had the religious connotation. Evacuating sounded like a bowel movement. Exodus? Now Janie was just being silly. Cleveland decided on the apolitical, unsentimental removal. They were removing the birds from the audit area. Hen. Not quite bird, not quite not bird. Tremendous wings, body slimmer than a duck, but the thing could barely fly. A few flopping feet off the ground and an awkward landing. Not what you first picture when you think bird and bird itself in the between space of mammal and reptile, a freakish mix of the two, warm-blooded and chatty, yet egg-laying, descended from dinosaurs. 
They pecked at her shoelaces, hopped up on a stool, poked at her buttons, looked into her face, gallus, gallus domesticas. It's mammal side wild, its face still containing the reptilian wilds. Beautiful, it was a beautiful excerpt. And I mean, if, I, if you don't mind, I'd love to jump in, like to segue right out of that moment. Um, Cause that was, a, that was a very striking moment in the novel where kind of find, the characters have to find the right language to represent what they're doing. That really struck me as being vitally important, especially as we enter into the chaos of the heist and we learn what happens, that word removal and the way that it becomes redefined and examined is really, it's very compelling. It's really important. I'm, I would love to hear from you about a little bit about the genesis of this novel, Deb, because I remember reading in Harper's this brilliant expose of farming you know, uh, industry, which by the way, I don't know if you read about Tyson today, but Tyson came out with a big statement saying that the food chain was in trouble because they can't do production. So we're going to get to that. I'm so interested in that. But, but yeah, so in, it was 2014, I think you had a great essay in Harper's called Cage Wars, where you wrote about, you know, the amorality, the immorality of egg production in the United States. And it was so brilliantly done. And I know that this was when you were working on the novel. And so I was curious just to hear kind of, about that experience of both kind of approaching your subject matter journalistically, but also as a fiction writer and, and to talk about how, you know, how this novel came to be. Sure. Yeah. I think I'm going to wind up asking you the same question, but let's start, <laughs> let's start with me. That's fine. So yeah, I read in, I read some article about the egg industry and about what happens to chickens and how they live on, you know, they live on space like this big. This is their space that they live in and so on. And so I was so horrified. And I just got this image in my mind of all of them leaving at once, um, mm. being a big barn at once. And at the time, I thought it was only maybe 20,000 chickens because I didn't really know very much about it. And this was so long ago. It was in like 2011. And I remember thinking that it's kind of like, it just seems to make so much sense. And even though it makes no sense at all because, right, I mean, it's the egg industry. Everybody eats eggs. You got to figure out a way to, you know, put, the, put all the chickens together to make all the eggs. But to me, it made so much sense, this idea of them all leaving the barn at once, kind of like if you're in a traffic jam and you just think like, why don't the people at the front just go a little faster? Or if you think about war, why doesn't everybody just put down their guns and stop shooting? So out of that, I just, just just grabbed onto that idea and I just ran with it. But I realized that I knew so little about the egg industry. So I started researching it and I started, I wanted, I decided that in order to get onto these farms, I was going to have to be a journalist. So then I was this journalist for Harper's writing about them. And then I realized that I didn't really know very much about chickens. So <laughs> I, needed to, I, needed to really, I needed to research chickens and find out what they were, what they were like, what their personalities were. And I needed to read a lot of books about them and I needed to just spend time with them and see, are they curious? Are they afraid of me? You know, just kind of hang out with them. What do they, do they interact with each other? What are they like? So I ended up in, I was spending a year in Michigan and I ended up spending a lot of time with chickens and I don't know, the book just grew and grew. It just, I, what started out as just an image of a bunch of chickens leaving a farm 
turned into this huge, huge thing because then I found out, oh no, there's like 150,000 chickens in one barn. So it wasn't going to be 20,000. And then I was like, whoa, but they couldn't. And a, a farm isn't just one barn. It's like eight or 10 or 20 right. barns. So it just kept getting bigger and bigger. Okay, so I'm going to turn the question back on to you. Before I do, though, I want to say that I knew about this book a long time ago because I was judging a grant, the capital grant, and this, an excerpt, and I don't even remember what excerpt it was anymore. It's been so many years, but um, mm-hmm. an excerpt crossed my desk, and, uh, and it was so good. And you immediately were just at the top of the list. And I was so excited because, because I, I knew you just a tiny bit at that point. And then I was like, man, and she's such a good writer too. It's so amazing. And so then you wound up getting the grant and then, and then you wound up writing this great book. And so I, was <laughs> I mean, I thought it was so interesting when I read your book, because we both, you know, you have, you know, you, you've got this, this aardvark at the center of the brain. I have these chickens at the center and you have this incredible part of the book where we see into these, uh, this aardvark and like how she wound up where she is, mm-hmm. right? And, and what path she took to get to where she is. And it's like so moving and, I just, I loved it so much. So tell us. And there's a moment in Barn 8 where we enter into, everyone has to know this, we enter into a chicken named Walk. So we're going to talk about the humor of Barn 8, which is just absolutely tremendous and side-splitting. It's a marvelous, it's brilliant, brilliantly marvelously funny. But to enter into a chicken, I mean, I think it's really interesting, Deb, that we both we both did that in our way. I mean, I certainly was not entering into like a, the, the perspective of the aardvark. I mean, I was keeping my omniscience, but I mean, you really dove into Block. I mean, Block became a character in this novel. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, but you kind of did. I mean, you did keep, you kept omniscience, but you are, I mean, you know, you can feel what it is to be this aardvark, like going through yeah. the forest smelling and looking around and you know having its family there and stuff you know you can feel the presence of it and I think it's interesting that both of us chose to do it in a really small way like the block does not take up pages and pages that block shows like a page and a half here and like another page there but Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be like block chicken because that could get really cartoonish and totally you know so you and I both took a really light hand with it, but I'm really glad that we did because I love the idea of like the animal world coming in. Like we are animals. This, this world is full of animals. You know, like I look out my window and there's squirrels all over the place. And yet we just act like it's just not even there. You know, we act like personhood is not a part of our world and it should be a part of our world. It should be a part of my life at all times. Like all the animals that are all around me, the cockroaches and everything. Well, that's another thing you do so well in Barnett is how you kind of discuss the history and the legacy of these hens and chickens, Deb, as a part of society right up until basically the moment that you're writing. Like you actually like isolating us in this moment of time, this contemporary moment of time, you all, the, the novel also addresses the fact that chickens actually and these hens had 
a better life for years, right? Lead, you know, and, and the novel travels back in time. And it's so it's it's such an expansive read for that reason. And then we even move forward into the future and without let you know letting out any secrets of the novel, I mean, it becomes wildly absurd by the end of the novel what happens with the sort of the world of the chicken. And so I don't know, I think that that there's something to be said for just kind of having this one creature be a kind of gateway into this larger commentary about human existence and the way that we've lived amongst creatures and how we really are in this strange moment in time where we think of ourselves as somehow different from them. I think that's right. Yeah. That makes sense. And you know what? Your book does it too. It's the craziest thing. When I read your book, I could not believe some of the similarities, even though we had never had a conversation about it. Like with you, I feel like, I feel like with the aardvark in the book, there's this art, there's just like a dead aardvark, you know, a stuffed aardvark that's just being lugged around like some kind of just, it's just a problem. This is a problem. And it felt so representative to me of so, just so many things about, you know, where we are now, like the animal world and, and, and not just like the entire natural world, like the entire thing that we think that we are not a part of is something that we have stuffed and stuck somewhere. And we're just like lugging it around. And it's just like a problem, and <laughs> you know, politician who's just like, it's just making a big mess of it all. I mean, that's how I, that's how I was feeling reading your book. And it was so and I was just so, I was so heartbroken about that aspect of it. Although the whole book is such a farce and so funny. Yeah, I mean, taxidermy itself, I think is actually, it's pretty widely misunderstood. I mean, yes, it's a, it's a sort of a creepy thing to do. It's a strange thing to do to, to stuff an animal. But I think our tendency towards it is either to recoil in horror or to laugh at it. I mean, in particular, if a work of taxidermy has gone really really badly. Um, there's actually a, an entire Twitter feed about um, called Crap Taxidermy, where uh, you can see these horrific images of like the animals that have been stuffed really hor like horribly and it's monstrous. But it's also, but it creates this kind of villainous comic effect in us. And I, you know, I guess the novel was basically asking some of these questions, Deb, which is like, well, you know, what, what is this transit of life, you know? And what happens in this idea of recreating you know, a beast that has already died. Like there is a kind of rebirth in notions of taxidermy that's happening. And so I wouldn't say that that was the, you know, the, the major impetus of the novel's design, but it certainly, it was an effect of having written it, that the rebirth of these two men who, these two stories of these two gay men who couldn't, couldn't fully realize themselves in their own times that became an obviously paralleled with the, the problem of the aardvark being unrealized as well. That's interesting. Yeah, and the, the aardvark carried bad luck with it, you know, and, or something, some kind of voodoo. <laughs> it was so interesting, you know, and if you think about, if you think about sort of like the position that we're in right now, you know, with COVID-19 and the, um, you know, our attempt at conquering, taming, owning, killing the natural world in some way has resulted in what it has resulted in right now. I just, you know, it's just a lot of, 
it just feels very, there's a parallel there. Well, and you were mentioning to me earlier that you had made the discovery about the dolphins in Venice, which has stayed with me, Deb. I mean, and many of us know that, that the dolphins have returned to the canals of Venice and we're starting to see the natural world kind of wake up in all these kinds of, these, these amazing ways and the environment as well. We, there's a, a famous promenade uh, in Portland, Maine, where I live, it's called the Western Prom. And for years I've walked this path, I mean, for almost 15, 20 years now. And for the first time, Deb, you can see the White Mountains of New Hampshire from the Western Prom. So there's some, so the skies are like something's happening. So there's there is definitely you know this natural shift happening, which is fascinating. But but I I'm really dying to ask you a question about kind of the politics and the satire in your book, and kind of like the like the comedy and and how you came to you know, this, the, you know, this amazing voice, which just soars and, you know, through the novel. I mean, for those of you who are watching, who really like just run out and get this novel, it's brilliant. I mean, the way that Deb moves us through numerous different points of view with this, this marvelously flat affect that is just so poetically rendered, every passage of this novel feels so tense and deliberate it just like, it throws you into the next passage. It's, it's really, be- it's like a beautiful work of architecture. And Deb, I'm just curious to hear like how you reach that place of kind of hyperbole that allowed you that shifting from voice and perspective from point of view to point of view that ended up creating the, this sense of an extraordinary collective. I mean, I, I would imagine that, you know, you could mention Saunders or, or Vonnegut even, or maybe even somebody like, Joseph Heller with like Catch-22 as a model, but like in my ear, I was actually reading a writer more like John Dos Passos, you know, a writer who was so kind of repulsed by the subject matter that there's like, you could, you could feel the recoil, but the recoil is being interpreted in a hugely innovative and experimental way where we're getting this just landscape of characters. And so I'm just, I'm curious to hear kind of, you know, how you felt as a writer approaching all of these different points of view in this novel and how, how you got away with it, basically. Because <laughs> it's really, it's, a, it's an astonishing feat. It really is. Well, I think that it was really important to me that I do it that way because it was kind of like the underlying philosophy of the whole thing was sort of about how no event occurs on its own, that every event is pushed to its, its eventness by all these different forces. And everything that pulls away from that event is affects, just, just how cause and effect is not so simple as cause effect, cause effect, that it's, right. it's, it's everything is, is working together to move towards something and away from something. And so it was really, and so in that way, we're all connected. Like we're all sisters, you know, or brothers. We're all, you know, even like the birds that are flying overhead or, you know, even the air is working together towards something. And so, so I, I just philosophically, I feel like, I feel very strongly about that. And so I, that was necessary. It was a part of the book for me. But you know what book, it's interesting, all the books that you mentioned, those are all books that I've read and all books that I've loved, especially Catch-22 was definitely an influence. But the one that I think was the most formative for me was um, Edward P. Jones, The Known World. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Novel, and where he has all these different points of view. 
and um, he circles way forward into the future and way for way back into the past. And he has these, these had these long stretches where you feel like you're on some kind of tangent, you know, you're like, why are we hearing about this person? But it completely interweaves back into the narrative. And then sometimes you just, one character is just like, forget it. I quit. And he just leaves and goes off into the, into the desert, but just on this quest. And it goes on for like 40 pages. And it was just amazing to me. And it was so revelatory. And, you know, mm-hmm. he came to camp to campus, this campus. Oh, really? Yes. And wow. He, He's so, um, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't he doesn't visit a lot of campuses. So Mitchell Center must have just given him a fortune. And um, he came <laughs> and I asked him about this, that passage. And you know, he said he said, you know, I I just felt like I needed something in that spot. Like his response was so it was so interesting. It wasn't like oh, it was this revelatory, yeah. you know, nothing. He just was so anyway, not conjured. I know. I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. He, he, so anyway, that book was a huge influence on me and I read it several times while I was writing the book. Also experimental. I hate that word, but there are, in a, I mean, they're innovative narrative modes. I mean, you have di- like various narrative strategies at work in the story as well. So it's almost as though like language and style itself becomes part of the grand universal element of the novel. It's almost like, you know, the novel is completely open to any form that interested you in that moment. It was, it was sort of fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm just jealous, Deb. <laughs> well, okay, so let's talk for a minute about the structure of yearbook. Oh. It's also so amazing. I know we just start, we're like, we're like, um, we're just, the we're thing fangirling. The audience, you should know, I really seriously love this book. This is not like I'm just, you know, just like, oh, I'm matched to Jessica. I'm going to quickly read her book. And then, you know, no, I love, I freaking love her book. So you should. Well, definitely- and we, we did an interview together. They, everyone should know it's in the Irish times. We're talking about satire and politics and writing these two novels. And so we, this was sort of the genesis for our conversation today was a, a conversation we had in the Irish times. So go check it out. It's online. Anywho. Yes. And so the thing that I wanted to say about the structure of yours is that you are also moving around to different points of view. And, and your piece, it felt like a symphony. It felt like we're just, we're just rolling along in this. In this. It, it feels like, like everything is just building and building and building and building. It seemed like there was just no, no way that you were going to be able to pull this off and like bring me to the fever pitch point that you did, but you did. How did you structure yours? Yeah. Thank you. Well, it's funny, uh, you know, it's voice, Deb, for me. And, you know, um, I think a lot about other fields, uh, you know, in the arts to try to understand what, we re- what we're really doing as writers. And I don't know how familiar you are, you are with the world of choreography, but I'm sure you know Bob Fosse. And Bob Fosse uh, famously wanted to be you know, a dancer. He danced for years, but he kind of had these these pigeon toes. And so he was sort of dancing. He was dancing well. He was a beautiful dancer, but just a little bit wrong, you know? And so he also grew up, you know, with his mother was, was a cabaret dancer. And so he grew up sort of seeing as a young boy the cabaret lifestyle. 
and sort of women kind of dancing in a very like lazy flopping way. And so though, like I, I think about this as, as a sort of sideways way of talking about how I got into the novel, because what Bob Fosse actually ended up doing was kind of taking what should be the wrong thing and making it totally right. You know, so if you think about Bob Fosse's choreography, all of his dancers with his famous Bob Fosse stance, they have their toes pointed inward. You know, if you look at if you see Sweet Charity, the film with the famous stance number, you know, of the prostitutes who are trying to recruit the, you know, the man right into their into their their wiles. Um, they're drooped over the banister. Their toes are inward. And so he really just kind of owned the thing that shouldn't have worked. And I remember back in 2015, I was reading a lot of articles about millennial culture and this kind of new voice that had sort of emerged, like this way of speaking that was like Valley Girls went to business school, basically. And I, and I realized like that is actually how a lot of us speak. We, we fill our sentences with likes and we lean on speech in a certain way that makes the music sound totally homogenized, you know, and this is across millennials and Gen Xers, I have to say. I mean, it's kind of like TV speak. It's internet and TV speak. And, and it's how we talk. Uh, it's how our generation talks. And so, you know, like most writers would do their darndest to avoid that sound because it's, it's kind of a dissonant, horrible sound, actually. But I decided to just kind of own it. And I thought, well, what would happen if I just walked into this sound, basically, and allowed myself to write it on the page. And so the voice of Alex Wilson in the second person has all of these kind of contemporary affects of speech. And it was really the voice that ended up creating the speed of the novel. I mean, the voice just hurtled through, um, through the writing of the book. I wrote the first draft actually very quickly in like six weeks. And then it was, you know, years of, you know, working on it and expanding it. But but so then it was, you know, moving back and forth between the omniscient passages, which were the historical passages that I felt like were, at least in my mind, a very heavy handed Henry James, but also kind of trying to also similarly retain a little bit of that thrust and that speed from the Alex Wilson passages. And so that's kind of how the structure became to be born, you know, really. And the novel begins with this kind of wild six page I don't know, just a thrust of language that ends up with the evolution of the aardvark. And, and so then following the aardvark also, also did the work of creating the structure of the novel. But yeah, it really, it really came out of me deciding to just own what you shouldn't do, basically, that, that made the book happen. Yeah. I love that. I love that that's how, and I love that you're talking about being inspired by a choreographer and his error. I mean, that's the thing is like so much great art comes out of resistance against the error within you or like trying to work with the error. Right. The flaw. Yeah. It's the flaw. You can't be a dancer because of your, your pigeon toes, but then it becomes your defining characteristic, you know? No. So what's your flaw? Do you know? Oh, I have so many. <laughs> Do you want a list? I can write a list for you. <laughs> I mean, what's the flaw that you feel like you were fighting against? Was there any that you feel like you had to overcome? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, for me, fiction, every, I feel like every story I write just really is, it has its own desires and its own terms. And 
you know, now that I'm, I'm really writing longer narratives more than short stories now for this reason, because it takes me a while to kind of figure out, you know, what it is that the story really is, what it wants to be, um, and sort of what that sound is. But I guess I would just say that for, I think for a long time, my flaw was trying to, trying to sound like, or to try to be the writer that I wasn't, you know, I, I have so many writers who I admire and I wish that I could write like them and, it's just not me. It's not what I'm good at. And so I think when I discovered finally that I am, at least in my point of view, a voice writer, that it sort of helped me to realize that like, look, you can't do everything. You can't be everything. And that's fine. You know, let Edward P. Jones be Edward P. Jones, you know, and like, let th that's what he's going to do. You, you know, you do you what's like, so what are you? And, you know, it took me, I guess it took me maybe longer than some other writers to figure that out. But I think we all feel the burden of performance, don't we? That we have to be sort of, I don't know, we have to be speaking at a certain level or sounding a certain way. Our sentences all have to be beating back the past, you know? They all have to be these beautiful, exquisite sentences. But really, like, an exquisite sentence in the end can come from a very strange, unlikely, or even ugly place. So I, I don't know, it was just the gradual kind of opening up to that, po the, that potential of flaw and ugliness that really, I think, allowed me to, to embrace this flawed and ugly character, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, so we are open up to questions from the audience. Oh, let's see, we have something from Katie Simpson-Smith, who we just had a wonderful oh. event with last week. Oh, nice. And Katie. Katie says, though these are deeply funny books, you both write about grief within animals. The noble aardvark being dragged from her den, the first chicken being liberated, bewildered, lost. What kind of strategies did you use to get into that headspace in such a loving, non-satirical way? I can say that it was, for me, it was really, I spent a lot of time with chickens. There was, I went to visit a lot of chickens. I, I and I, there was a, a, a farm animal sanctuary that was not too far from where I was living in Ann Arbor. And so I would just go there. They, they had a hundred rescued chickens. They had just gotten a hundred rescued chickens when I was living there. And the woman who was um, guarding the place said that I could just come anytime. So I would just go and just sit in the hen house and just watch them. And I would just sit there with my notebook and I recorded them. And then, and they, you know, they're just, they always are talking. They never shut up. And so I recorded them and then I would just listen to them at night on my headphones and just, just like internalize their sound. And just, I just was, you know, you would think that just for, for a book that only has a few pages of the internal chicken, chicken life, that you wouldn't have to do so much work. But I mean, I just did all that work. And then I also went to the giant factory farms, to one in particular, where they let me come in and I, I visited the chickens and I just studied them in their cages. And then I also contacted the Mercy for Animals and the Humane Society of the United States and asked them for undercover footage of chickens in cages. And they sent me hundreds of hours worth. And so I just sat and I watched about 50 hours of them in their cages. And I just watched them and just saw how they, how they lived in their cages and what they did all day in there. And and I also read a lot of books about chickens and books about, you know, a lot of books about chickens are mostly about how 
to take care of chickens. Like if you have them in your backyard or something, it was very hard to find a book that was just like about like chickens apart from human use mm -hmm. and chickens that are not assuming that you're writing about how to use them. Mm -hmm. And so when I found that book, I just studied it. It's called chicken by Annie Potts. So I did a lot of things to try to really get in the mind of the chicken. How about you, Jessica? I mean, that's such an awesome, awesome story, Deb, of like how you got there. That's so interesting. I, yeah, I mean, for the aardvark, I mean, I saw aardvarks a couple times in zoos, you know, I watched a number of videos of aardvarks and sort of studied how they, they ambled. An aardvark in a zoo is going to move very differently than an aardvark in its native habitat. And so I, you know, didn't have the opportunity to go to Namibia and watch an aardvark, like, truck around Namibia. So I think, like, fundamentally, I just asked myself, you know, when the aardvark is shot, you know, what is it like, what would it feel like to be shot? And then I just tried to write the aardvark from what I would imagine that might feel like. So there, you know, without deliberate kind of personification. I just essentially tried to empathize in that moment with, with what that pain was, because that's, that's really the, that's the moment that we get the aardvark when she's alive before she's stuffed. Yeah. Yeah. I was really moved by that moment, by the way, when you had that moment when I, I mean, even though I could just, the moment of her running through the forest, it's a forest, right? It's, yeah. It's like a Savannah. <laughs> so I could just hear like the, the ancient thrum of this animal. It's Joseph has a question for Jessica. Your reading was hysterically funny. Are you doing the audiobook? Oh, I, I, the audiobook has been done, and uh, the actor Matt Ament, I believe, has has recorded recorded it. So it's 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 a man reading it. I actually haven't listened to the audiobook. I'm a little I'm a little scared too. I don't know why, but it's irrational. I just need to listen to it. <laughs> I'm the same way with mine. I'm I don't want to I can't listen. I just can't bear it. I listened to a few minutes but that was all I could Wait, do. Who did yours, Deb? Oh, I can't believe I can't remember her name right now. It's Kimberly I don't, I can't remember her name right now. That's how much I blocked it out. I, I <laughs> so um, I have a question. You've both talked a little about the formal difficulty of your book, the structure and sort of what you both struggle with as writers. Can you talk something uh, a little about your editing process for each of your books? Deb? Yeah, I did a lot of editing. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I feel like novels are just such a big job. It's, you know, it's like you spend years on this book and then someone calls you and is like, I read your book yesterday. It was great. You know, it's like, oh. <laughs> but that's fine. Like, that's great. That's, that makes me really happy when that happens. It's just, for me, editing is such a meditative process and it's like, it brings so much to my life to be able to do it because it's like, you know, I get up in the morning and I work for a couple of hours, a few hours editing and organizing and, you know, working on this book. And it, then I can like breathe for the rest of the day. Then I feel like I'm a whole person. So it, so it is this solipsistic kind of endeavor while I'm doing it, but it makes me open to the rest of the world. I feel like for the rest of the day. So that then I can go on and 
help others in some way. But I think without that, without those early hours of working and organizing and editing, I just, I don't think, I don't think I'd be as available emotionally as I can be. How about you, Jessica? I become just radically selfish when it comes time to cope with like the draft and start revising and, and reimagining the, you know, what's, what's happened on the pages. That actually took me to the, the bridge in Slovakia. I had a residency in Slovakia where I was guarding a bridge for three months. And I deliberately went to a place where I knew that very little would happen because I just really did not want to be distracted at all. You know, like the most exciting event at guarding my bridge in Slovakia was like going up to this basilica where there was this little modern statue. It's called, it was called the number two thing to do in Estragom on TripAdvisor. So you can like, it's like the number two thing in, in Estragom is to go and look at this little statue next to a basilica. So I knew that I was going to a good place, but I was like guarding the bridge by writing the novel for, for three months. It's like an artist in residency there. And it was, it was terrific. It was just a long, long stretch of solitude. And just like Deb said, this solipsistic time where I could just drop into the book and it was my decision whether or not I wanted to be pulled out of it because it's fascinating how your life can just in, you know, even the people who, who love you. I mean, Deb, you actually talked about this at the creative capital retreat. I will never forget this. How you say, like you said, like even the people who love you want your failure. And you meant that in the, in the, in the, in like the most, you know, beautifully artistic way, which is to say, like, we love them to pe- our family, we love them to pieces and our friends and even, but even your dog, like your dog needs to be walked. Like your dog wants your failure. You have to constantly be fighting against all of these outside forces that are going to pull you outside of, of your work. And so, you know, I think for me personally, it was just really great to, you know, be able to, you know, really to be privileged to be in a space where I could go for a few months and just, just focus on the novel. It desperately needed to happen. This was the summer of 2017. So it was like rich in Trump. And I was just feeling overwhelmed with the noise. And it was, it was a great experience. But, but yeah, I would just say for me, it's, it's quiet time. You know, it really is. Yeah. From Michelle Kim, given that chickens are the focus of Barnate and your graphic novel, I Parrot features parrots and passenger pigeons. What draws you to birds specifically? Mm. And an anonymous attendee asks, can you talk a little about the addition of the security guard character later in the book? What was the genesis of this character? Was he a later revision addition? Oh, that is such a great question. Okay, so first of all, about the birds, I think I was already working on Barney when I wrote, the, when I did the graphic novel. So I, the Barnate for me was so hard to write. I just kept giving up and working on other things. So I wrote two other books in the time that I was working on Barnate. And so I think it was like, that was my way of still working on Barnate to work on the graphic novel. And, you know, it was just going to be birds, you know, and if, <laughs> anyone, if anyone's read my novel Vacation, that features a, a dolphin that is freed. And if anyone has read a story of mine called Pet that was in my last book, Wait Till You See Me Dance, that features two turtles that are free. I don't know. It's, it's a theme. I can't help it. Every time I'm like, okay, no more animals. Now I'm writing a sci-fi novel and that also has, now I've got these, these animals that are, oh, it's terrible. That must be freed. What's going to happen? 
So the other question about, about the security guard. So I had written a novel a long time ago that never got published. It was my first novel that I worked on really hard for three years. And I never, it was a disaster. There was nothing in it that was salvageable. And except there's this one security guard. And I pulled out that security guard. He wasn't really a security guard. He, in the novel, the first novel, he was a, he was a, a CIA agent for a country that was no longer at war. And so all the CIA agents had left and he was the last one. He was just sitting around and he was um, trying to trying to still report, but nobody was nobody was picking up his reports anymore or anything. So so I, I pulled that section out and I put it into this book and I just turned him into a into a security guard and then who who everybody has left and he's just been left there. And he's, uh, so, so yeah, so that, that was the genesis of that. That was great. Great questions. I thought all the questions were great. Thank you so much, Jessica and Deb for coming out to talk to all of us tonight. And thank you to everyone who showed up and supported. A reminder that you can buy Jessica and Deb's books, Enter the Aardvark and Barn 8 at greenlightbookstore.com and any of their other books. Thanks again, everyone, and have a great night. Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And also to the audience, you don't have to buy my book or Jessica's book, but please buy something from Greenlight Bookstore. We really want them to be healthy and happy and we want when this nightmare is over to not wake up to a broken world. So they're so valuable. I love green light books and I hope that you'll buy something from them. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Greenlight Bookstore Podcast. We're grateful to our production partners at Libro FM for working with us to produce the quarantine season. Libro FM provides access to thousands of digital audiobooks through partnerships with independent bookstores nationwide. You can purchase Libro FM audiobooks at greenlightbookstore.com. You can subscribe to the Greenlight Bookstore podcast on iTunes, download it as a free audiobook from Libro FM, or stream it on greenlightbookstore.com/podcast. There you can also find past episodes and links to purchase the books discussed the best way to support your local independent bookstore and the literary communities we serve is as simple as buying a book.